Dotnet Rocks, episode 1080, with guest Brian Hunter. Recorded Friday, December 5th, 2014. Hey, it's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And here we are again. This is the last show we were recording at NDC London. Although publication order is always different than yeah. recording order, just because of because of reasons. Yeah, it was scheduling and whatever. Yeah, because so, of reasons. Right. But we like to do the time-shifting thing. So when is this actually being published? Uh, December 30th. Uh-huh. Yeah. So did you have a nice Christmas? I Oh, that's awesome. Did you get everything you wanted? Yeah, I always do. <laughs> and I'm probably I'm almost done with my advent calendar right now. <laughs> yeah, it's like your second to last day. For those who don't know, Richard got me a whiskey advent calendar for Christmas, and it's awesome. <laughs> Behind every door is a dram of something delicious. And the first the first day, yes. December 1st, was a 40-year-old Glenn Farkless. That just set the tone. Yeah, I think it actually ends on Christmas Eve. So you've been done for a week. Oh, I have. Okay. Yeah. No, it's not quite the whole And I remember month. the last one I got you, the last booze, the last one was amazing. It was amazing. a 50-year-old something. Yeah, something really rare. Ridiculous. Yeah. So I just got to think with this one, considering it led with a 40, yeah, I can't gonna, imagine can't what imagine. your finishing is going to like be. Like a 100-year-old scotch or something. So, I don't know. It'll be something. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be like Shackleton Reserve. You know? <laughs> we dug this under the ice in Antarctica. <laughs> That's right. And put it in a bottle for you. For you. All right. Well, anyway, enough of that. It's time for Better Know Friends. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? So I've been going back and uh, revisiting stuff that I have forgotten Uh that it's been so long because there's a lot of people that are just jumping on the .NET bandwagon. Yeah, you know, you're right there. So we'd like to go back and do some uh, oldies but goodies. Okay. And um, so there's this, anytime you want to create a random number. It's a problem. Random's harder no, than you think. There's no true random. True. Everything is based on some sort of number seed. So yep. uh, there is a random object, right? And you can easily generate random numbers from it, but they, you might get some duplicates. However, right. if you go to tinyurl.com slash randomrng, this will tell you about the RNG crypto service provider object, oh. which is part of the .NET framework. Yep. And this generates high-quality random numbers. With it, we can use an RNG, which is a random number generator, that is as random as possible. This helps in applications where random numbers must be completely random. Of course, there is no 100%, but you can get close. The random object, as I said before, isn't thread-safe, and it's seeded based on the number of seconds the system has been active. Right. So it's possible to get the same random number twice. But RNG crypto provider is about 300 times slower but it does a better job at creating random Getting numbers. something really random. Yeah, well, okay. as random as you can get. It's, it's just one of those problems that is way harder than you realize. Turns out it's really easy. You basically just create a, a, a byte array that's four bytes long right. for an integer, and you say, get bytes, and you fill the data array, and then you use a bit converter to convert it to an integer. Actually make it into an integer. So yeah. it, gives you, it basically gives you random byte values. Random byte values. Okay. Yep. I like it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment on show 753. How's that for dipping back into the oh archives? Oh, my gosh. 2012 is a show we did with Brian Hunter and O.J. Reeves where we talked about Erlang. I love Way Erlang. back in the day. I think Mr. Hunter's moved on. But this comment, uh, which also references a blog post, is really kind of cool. It's from Martin Kleberger. 
Mm-hmm. He says, hello, guys. I have done some hobby coding in Erlang. It has some really amazing features, as described in the podcast. Yeah. But there is some stuff that is not very nice in the Erlang language. And Damien Katz, the creator of CouchDB, sums this up in a blog post that you can read here. And he provides a link, which I will put into the show notes, mm-hmm. where Damien does a good job of sort of running down the details of what the challenges are in writing in Erlang. And he's got a, a few cool points. But, you know, there is no one right way, is there? Right? Sure. Like, if Erlang was all that in a bag of chips, then we'd be programming everything in it. It's right. good for some things. It's weaker than things. I think we sort of talked about all of that. And so, you know, Damien's uh, analysis of it is, is quite compelling. Like I said, read the blog post mm-hmm. yourself. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm not your mother, to quote, <laughs> to quote Mark Rendell. Uh, Google it. I'm not your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Martin goes on to say, Erlang is truly a -a one-of-a-kind language. Yeah, okay, pretty close. And I like it very much, but it's always nice to know about there's not so great stuff in the technology. Yeah, Yeah. there's a price for everything. Thanks for the great show. Even if a lot of topics fall outside of my core interest, I always learn new things and widen my perspective. And that's what we're all about. Absolutely. I totally agree. Martin, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And we've got mobile apps that you can write comments on as well, including ones for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Android, Windows 8, and iOS. And that brings us to our esteemed guest today. Brian Hunter is a partner at Firefly Logic, the founder of Nashville Functional Programmers, and a Microsoft MVP. Brian is obsessed with lean functional programming and CQRS. And you know what, Brian? I bet there's more on that list that you're obsessed with. <laughs> I just got a feeling. Yeah, you guys have uh, you got we hung out a bit, OCD. so you've got a taste of it, I think. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not harboring any illusions. <laughs> no. no. What is your latest obsession? Well, uh, uh, actually, the funny thing on the intro I was thinking is uh, where uh, Richard said uh, uh, that he's moved on from Erlang, which yeah. is not exactly no, right. Because, no. because uh, I haven't actually moved on from Erlang at all, but uh, but... There's a language elixir mm-hmm. uh, that is is a real obsession, and uh, my role at, at Firefly Logic is CTO, and and so it, one of the things we do is we get obsessed about the things that are going to help us uh, fix the problems that are facing us. Right. And so uh, with Erlang, uh, we love Erlang, and it's great for us, uh, and we are way past the problem of the syntax and the tooling because right. we've been using it for a long time and sure. we understood that the value side of it is at far outweighs the 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 inconveniences on the developer. Mm. But you're also doing the things that Erlang was meant to do, right? You're yeah, not, absolutely. You're you not trying to build phone apps with Erlang. Uh, well, you know, of course, <laughs> they, yeah. Um, you UI. Oh, oh, okay. That's funny. And that's a really funny thing because what we do at, <laughs> I, I, I took that a couple of different ways. One thinking phone apps like telecoms. And of course that's yeah, what Erlang is from. Exactly what Erlang is But as far as phone apps, you mean on the actual uh, the, mobile device, yeah, mobile uh, device app. that is really the reason that we are using Erlang and Elixir, uh, is because we are building phone apps. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, and so what we do is we, uh, our, our mission is really around uh, mobile at scale. Okay. And so uh, what we've uh, landed on is our stack. So we've been in Objective-C and Java uh, and in, uh, in right, C-Sharp so for Windows Phone and doing native that way. And so right. we moved over to uh, Xamarin uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so so early, you know, we moved in on, and we did a pilot uh, project, we were willing to scrap it and then eat the cost of rewriting it. So we're, wow. we're, mm-hmm. we're a consulting shop. We do project-based work. So sure. we take on a project 
And a lot of times it's left to us to decide the technology that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we try to deliver the best value there. And so, uh, we, we, we saw Xamarin, uh, had a lot to offer there because it gives us a chance of some reuse. It helps sure. us not have a bug on one platform. And, you know, one platform being good and Android, of course, being left behind because no one wants to do the Android side. And it's a, uh, so, <laughs> so much pain. <laughs> so much so pain. Much pain. Yeah. And so, uh, so Xamarin was attractive from that side. But and are we talking about Xamarin Forms or just like... Well, this is before Xamarin Forms. Okay, and so, so monotouch, mono for Android. Yeah. And so, so with Xamarin, uh, we started down that path. Right. And uh, the, the, the part that's so attractive to me about Xamarin more than the, the cross-platform is the fact that you have this, this platform where you can build mobile apps in a functional language. Okay. Right. And so F-sharp as the language to write Xamarin apps became a lot more real with Xamarin Forms, I believe, because you move away from the sort of tooling way yep. of building screens. And so, so it gives us – we're a functional first company. It gives us a chance of using F-sharp there on the, on the, on the client on the on the mobile device, right. which helps us build code that's more reasonable, easier to figure out what's going on, and I think that's very valuable on the device because mobile apps are terrifying. Yeah, you know, like there's so much surface area, there's so many weird things. Sure. So you want to have at least the things you can nail down and make safe safe. The thing that I'm uh, immediately thinking of is all of that platform specific goo. You know, uh, reading data from uh, callbacks. Uh, getting that data, aggregating that data, and getting that to the UI quickly. I mean, the UI code itself, F sharp, C sharp, doesn't seem to me that you get too much there. But it's the it's all the yeah. dealing with data and data streams that that seems you, you like get quite a few things in the protection uh, actually you know so with units of measure you you have the ability of locking things down so you're not accidentally uh, through a code refactoring accidentally multiplying inches times meters or sure. something like this sure. or you get this you get uh, the exploration through type providers and being able to to explore what's on the back you get. Uh, uh, discriminated unions, you have all these things where the code can collapse and become smaller. And mm. there's one thing that you don't want is a lot of mobile code. Right. And so conciseness is actually a much better uh, investment on a mobile device than it is even on on your server code. Sure. Interesting. Uh, and so, uh, so that's how we lead off there. And then, of course, if you build mobile apps, uh, there, how many billion mobile smartphones yeah. are out oh, there? There's a is few. It, so it, it, the... Uh, so what... It, We'll, we'll look up the number. Lots. Uh, so there, uh, I think like it's a billion. Like a billion? Or yeah. is it two billion? I, I actually thought it was two billion by the end of two, 2014, but mm-hmm. uh, we could look up this number. There but you go. When you, Smartphones users will total 1.75 billion in 2014. Okay. So crazy number. That's so a when lot. you've got like, uh, uh, like a fifth or a fourth of the, <laughs> of humanity yeah, holding mm-hmm. a smartphone. Right. Uh, you have potential for quite a bit of load sure. to get your servers. Right. And, if there is a platform that has proven itself for being able to handle like a large percentage of the world's traffic, right. it's Erlang, the Erlang VM. Right. And so and Elixir runs on the Erlang VM, exactly. right? Exactly. And so Elixir, uh, uh, I'll give you kind of a bit of the background on where it came from, but Elixir uh, runs exactly on the Erlang VM. It zero interop cost between Elixir code and Erlang code. So okay. you can call uh, Erlang from Elixir, Elixir from Erlang, and it all compiles down to the same thing. Nice. Uh, this is very much like C-sharp and F-sharp in that sense, where right. they're, they're absolutely compatible. How does that get to the phone framework? I mean, is there well, it, a, a it's portable class not, library okay, thing? It or? is actually, the Erlang is not on the phone. So this is the server side to handle. Right. So we've got... That's a so, really good distinction to make, because <laughs> yes. up to this point, you know, I've all been thinking Erlang on the phone. How yeah, does that work? Yeah, so, so 
So, uh, when you're building an app, of course, you're building really two halves of the thing. You're sure. building the, the, the UI and you've got the separation. And so, uh, you have a different set of concerns on the UI. You want to mm-hmm. have things is locked down, is tight. Uh, and so a language that's statically typed mm-hmm. that will help you catch uh, like goofy mistakes. Yep. Uh, yeah. You don't want things to change. It's not going to change because Apple won't let you change because right. you're going to go through a painful process in the Apple store anyway. Yep. And so uh, you want everything to be nailed down, locked down, no goofy bugs. That's the labyrinth of pain. So, right so you, uh, language like F Sharp, absolutely beautiful. You move as that mobile device communicates over the network uh, and you have those potentially 2 billion devices yep. you know, Coming smashing your, your servers. Uh, you can't you probably don't want to build on something that is its sweet spot is to run on one server. Right. Yeah. And you, you want to build something. Well, there's a talk here at NDC London uh, this week uh, about the release project. And the idea there is having Erlang, uh, building the Erlang VM so that it will scale up to uh, 10,000 cores. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, that is not the kind of talk that any other platform is talking about. I mean, the, the discussions that happen on the Erlang VM are different than happen yeah. elsewhere. It's really built right. for that kind of problem of, of dealing with many, many things at once, right. but then also being fault tolerant while, while it's doing it. So it's really about being able to handle load, and if things go wrong, which they absolutely will, yep. uh, how do you recover from that gracefully, and how do you have systems that run for years with no downtime? Mm. And so if you think about what mobile development is, it is the largest distributed computing project in the world, yeah, and and so sure. every device you're, you you have all these problems of distributed computing there, uh, and so a lot of people are, are are digging in, looking at Wikipedia, and seeing what the fallacies of distributed computing are <laughs> because <laughs> these things are becoming much more relevant to them. Yeah, sure. uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, interesting comment you, you uh, a bit ago is you mentioned uh, uh, Damian Katz uh, mm-hmm. from from Couchbase. Uh, so we've done some work with Couchbase where we were building. Uh, cross-platform mobile apps. We we wrote the app for their Connect conference right. uh, that was uh, re- recently happened, and uh, and so in that that case, it was it was a little bit of a, a reversal because we were building entirely the Xamarin uh, uh, the Xamarin apps that then talk back to Erlang in a different way because they wrote the Erlang. Right. <laughs> so so uh, what what Couchbase has done is really smart because they have Erlang to do the coordination of their clusters and mm-hmm. all the communication and all of the sort of passing things around and that's what Erlang does well yeah. and they and in the middle of that they're hosting bits of C when they need things that are just just right on the metal fast right. and then they are moving off and doing uh, using they have a polyglot approach there and mm-hmm. it's and it's very smart and uh like, what, I mean, Right language in the right place. Yes. What does Elixir bring to the table that Erlang by itself doesn't provide? Okay, yeah. So this is this is where it gets really fun. And uh, and I, I, Elixir, I think, is one of the most exciting things in computing right now. I mean, it's it's a, it's a brilliant language, but it it, it really f- it's going to change things because yeah. this, this is a language that is going to hit the top ten. It's okay. one that is off of people's radar now, mm-hmm. but it is, it is heading towards the top 10. Uh, so the language is about four years ago, a fellow named Jose Valim. Uh, he, uh, if you're a Ruby developer listening to this, you'll know who he is. Uh, uh, so Jose Valim is a core uh, member of the Ruby on Rails project. Right. Okay. And so uh, he's down in the middle thinking about how... Uh, do you build things efficiently? How do you reduce friction? How do you have developer joy? All of those Ruby things. And right. so, so he's off uh, in, in that land. And uh, he picked up Bruce Tate's Seven Languages in Seven Weeks book. Right. right. And yeah. he's going through it. And he's like, huh. 
<laughs> and so he hits the Erlang chapter in there, and he's, he's like, I haven't seen anything like that before. That looks like it would solve a lot of the problems that are killing me right now. And so he, he started looking at that, and he, he started thinking about, like everyone does when they first bump into Erlang, is like, how can I rip these pieces of Erlang off? And you know, port those ideas off into my language. Right, yeah, right, and, sure. And so, but Jose is a very smart guy. He's a brilliant language developer, but outside of that, he's a brilliant guy, and he's uh, and he knows how to solve problems. And so, what he he came to pretty quickly was this is a fool's errand. You don't you don't bring the Erlang VM over to uh, another platform. Yeah. You go to the Erlang. You go VM. to the Erlang VM. Erlang. And yes. so, sure. uh, for for the problems it's good at, because you're talking about hundreds of 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 developer years put into the building of that operating system yes. that is the Erlang VM. Which is really so the important part. It is the important part. Yeah. And so uh, and so he looked at that problem and he said, okay, uh, well, I could just learn Erlang then. And as he went to do that, he had the problem that a lot of people... This So Erlang built in 86, open sourced in, in uh, 98, yep. 97, 98. It's been out there this whole time. It's this brilliant language, but the adoption hasn't happened. No. And so there was a there was a big bubble in 2007 where a lot of people came onto the platform yeah. because they absolutely needed the thing that it offered. Yeah, but right. it Rock wasn't... solid stability. And, and, and so and there was a little bit of a, a, like a bubble of people that came on and they fell off, but there's this, still this core of this group that uses it and they're mm -hmm. solving the hard problems. Yeah. Uh, then everyone else was like, I'm not solving a hard problem and I'm not going to use this. I got but problems, I like but a, my problems aren't this hard. Yeah. And so they... It, or, <laughs> They look at it and, you know, and, and they're like, I, I, this doesn't look fun to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so it's a shallow reason, but until you've actually really seen what it can do, a shallow reason is enough to put you off. Right. Sure. Okay. So, uh, Jose, he went way beyond the shallow thing because, you know, he's, he's, he's a deep guy and he digs into lots of stuff. And so, uh, he, he decided that what he really, uh, needed was all these tools that he had in his Rails toolkit. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have the, the sort of environment, the, the dev tool chain that he had there. He wanted the language. There were things in the language that were driving him crazy that right. were just productivity killers that were, it was like these nice things. And it's like, uh, just the daily grind of being a dev, and uh, he he didn't think he could quite give that up. Right. So mm -hmm. he, he took on the crazy idea of why don't I write a new language against the runtime of Erlang? Yeah. Now, so what are the problems in Erlang that he was trying to solve? Okay, so so one, um, so you have to think about the the background of where Erlang came from. It was built by a bunch of engineers at Ericsson, Ericsson and it was yeah. really about building these high reliability systems and engineers. They weren't concerned about developer joy and, yeah. and hugging and hacky sack. You know, they weren't interested in all the sort of Ruby culture things. Sure. And so, uh, so you, 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 there's, there's additional friction that shouldn't be there. After a while, you mm. sort of get over it. But here's some things that Elixir brings that, so it is crazy simple to build tests and to be test driven, uh, in, in Elixir. Uh, Not so you in can, Erlang. You can do it in Erlang, but it's there's just a little bit of friction, mm. and you know how people fall sure. off the wagon with tests anyway. And I so didn't want to do these in the first <laughs> place, and now you made them hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm not yeah. doing this. Yeah, exactly. And so, right. and, and a Makes lot of sense. functional programmers end up not writing tests because most functional languages have very good REPLs, and so they get the advantage of the part of the advantage of test-driven development by by 
defining what the uh, the, the 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 code is going to look like right. by driving it uh, by rebel, your usage. A rebel is like an immediate window. Yeah, your of, immediate yeah. window, which yeah. uh, it's 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 so sad that we have to explain what a REPL is because uh, you, know, you know because back at, I, I, I I love the REPL in Visual Basic back yeah. in the nineties, yeah. and then and then this thing got taken away from me yeah, as yeah. a C sharp developer. And it's never and it's, really come back. <laughs> and so F sharp has it, mm. and that's another good reason to use F sharp there. But but yep. so here we are. Uh, we we have this REPL based. Uh, you know, we're, we have a, a very good shell, very good REPL. And so a lot of people would avoid building tests because they could get that side out. You don't get the regression, protection against regressions is one of the sad things about yeah. a REPL because, but in, say, in Elixir, an interesting thing is right in the middle of your comments, another thing that people don't like to do, right? <laughs> and so in the middle of your comments, uh, you can put a doc test in. So you're saying this function is going to do this. It's going to add two numbers and, and then you can have an example. You say example and you say, uh, have this little symbol that looks just like what you'd see in the shell. Right. And you say, uh, one plus two. And then, uh, and you see, uh, uh, three below, right? Right. Yeah. That becomes a unit test. So For this typing is that. just typing this in in your code comments. Oh, wow. You follow this convention and then you say, you go, you hop out to the, uh, to the, the, uh, to the, your terminal and you say mix test. It takes that code, compiles it and it says, uh, you, your t- one test passed. Huh. That and is so, so freaking cool. Yeah, that's pretty Why cool. can't we have that in C sharp? Well, see, I mean, but this is the thing. So this is one tiny thing that, yeah. that most people, when they're giving a, a literature talk, won't even mention. And there are hundreds of these. And this is the thing. It is. Uh, so I thought my life was pretty cushy as like a C sharp guy, you right, know. And I go yeah. to F sharp, and Microsoft hasn't invested as much as they should in the tooling there, right. and it's not quite as nice. And so I'm, but I'm, I'm willing to live with that because I know what I get out of it. Right. Yeah. I didn't know what the life was like. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, so, so on uh, the Elixir side, Jose, he didn't just bring Ruby. So it's not Ruby on the Erlang VM. Yeah. This is the first thing that people, when they say Elixir, that's the first thing that pops in their head. They say, Ruby oh, for this is Ruby on the Erlang VM. Right. And the, the thing that's actually more correct, it's, it's the Ruby culture. On right. the Erlang VM, yeah. the language ends up being having some syntactic bits from Ruby, but ends up having more important parts pulled in from Closure. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. has some things from Haskell, has mm-hmm. some things from F Sharp, has things from Node.js, has things from Python. So, so the doc test, a real mature is, language brought to you by somebody who knows is, all the good stuff about all the languages. You look at what happened when they looked at Java. And they said, let's make this better and make C sharp. Yeah. Well, now we're looking at all of the languages ever all made. All the functional. Sharp. Yeah, all the functional languages, even, but they're borrowing from Node. They're borrowing right. from Python. They're borrowing from everything, every place where they have a good story. And they say, this bit of tooling is really nice here. Mm. This bit of syntax is very nice here. And so you end up having this mm. experience. So as you're typing numbers, for example, you're, you're typing, uh, so you get like a, a one billion. Right. So instead of having one billion, you're sitting there and like one, and you're counting the zeros. Like, how many is here? And did right. I have 10 billion or do I have, you know, 100 million? Mm-hmm. So you can, in the middle of your numbers, you can just put uh, underscores in the middle of the number where you would put your, your sort of digit your commas, separators. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it compiles. It's just, and so you have the way that all these things like this, the way that these doc tests work, the way that those underbar things work with commas, all these bits of sugar. So right. this is syntactic sugar. This well, is right. not yeah, no semantic problem. stuff. This is it all syntax makes stuff. It easier these to is develop. tooling things. This is all based on a very uh, well thought out macro system. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so there's a, here's, uh, so if I have a dollar to spend on words, mm-hmm. here's my, here's my one dollar word. Uh, homoiconicity is the, oh, is the word. And so this is, this is like the, <laughs> so this is like the, uh, the, the, the code as data. Right. So, so you have this syntax tree basically where you can go back and forth and you can treat the code as data and you can treat the data as code, but you have this ability of doing this. And this is borrowed from the Lisp languages have, I mean, this is what they're really known for. This is what Clojure is really known for. Mm. Uh, and you can do this in other languages, but it gives you this ability at compile time to run Elixir code on your Elixir code. Okay. And yeah. so, so you can define a macro and in the compile cycle, you can say, I'm going to, uh, oh, I've got a macro here. I'm using this macro. I'm going to use this macro and give it a chance to walk through the entire tree of code. So we get a taste of this in C sharp when we deal with expression trees. Right. Uh, but it's not a very good taste. It tastes bad. I mean, but you look at it and you see all the potential of it, but you know, it's, it's kind of painful there. It's, it's a really nice, well thought out system inside of uh, Elixir. And again, we're talking about a compiled language, right? right? So, uh, the metaprogramming bits and Ruby that that community is sort of known for, well, you've got this, this interpreted thing, right? And so, so it's, you can kind of, well, of course you can change it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but here you have, um, this this cycle of uh, of this compiled language where you have metaprogramming and and as an F sharp developer who is also an Elixir developer I'm in a there's it's the Venn diagram is you know yeah. <laughs> is is kind of funny because there's not a lot but at this it, actually at this conference there are quite a few that are interested in both which right. is uh, I'm getting tickled about because FP track uh, has brought in a uh, a bunch of other folks and but anyway uh, back <laughs> to the story <laughs> so F sharp and uh, and Elixir uh, uh, they have both really good metaprogramming stories mm-hmm. and so yeah. you think what a type provider is yeah it's great. You think you I, know the first thing I heard when I asked when Don Syme told us what type providers were, I said, Any chance we can get that in C sharp? And he goes, No. <laughs> you gotta come to F sharp <laughs> There you type go. Type provider. And, and, and so in a language where you actually don't even have types, it's a funny thing to think about type providers, right. but you have the ability of doing things like that. And and so in Elixir you have the potential of adding things onto the language. And right. and the thing is is that community they're delighted to do that. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, the other day, I, I stopped by, uh, I have some friends at, uh, at Erlang Solutions, uh, and they're headquartered here in London. Mm-hmm. I went by the office, and they have just these amazing archives of things. They have these these books that go way back from before uh, Erlang was open sourced. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and so I'm looking at this reference manual, and it looked exactly the same. Interesting. It's like, it's like all this is the same, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's 2014 now. Sure. And that's, uh, this is like 2006, 2007, and mm-hmm. I could write. And, not, and it would all compile. And mm. and so on one side, that's very stable. Right. On the other side, it's like um, it tells you a bit about what that environment is about. It's really right. about it's from engineering where things don't really need to change. The problem solved yeah. and we'll take on whatever kind of pain we have. The Elixir community on the other side, they're building all these tools. Uh, there are um, so Ecto is another example of right. metaprogramming. So Ecto is a library uh, for Elixir that is link. It's like link or entity framework or something like that. Other than it's uh, it's not crappy. <laughs> so so, uh, so, it, so Ooh, what, what it's actually doing is it, it compi- it's actually more like the SQL type provider oh, uh, inside of uh, inside of F sharp because mm-hmm. you you have this ability of then you know declaring your sort of link syntax and then you're getting this uh, this active records stuff coming back out of that. Mm-hmm. So again, you've got this mix of Ruby like things. It's and, and Jose says we absolutely looked at Link. We looked at what Link was doing in C sharp. Mm. Uh, it was beautiful. We we took it. We ported it. Mm. 
Well, uh, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to pull up the Elixir Repl, type in the number of <laughs> listeners still tuned in using the underscore. Uh, oh, wait. Doesn't need an underscore. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, that's dark, man. That's dark. It's dark. Uh, it's actually time to give away a guardrail subscription from Script Rock. And uh, if you don't know what that is, Guardrail is uh, from Script Rock and, uh, and Fighters of Configuration Drift. Configuration Drift happens in every environment from five servers to 5,000. You know the problem. Someone sometime changed something, <laughs> and you're only finding out because you just deployed and your code doesn't work. Well, we have the solution. Guardrail scans the configs of every node in your environment, flags any differences, and alerts you when new changes are introduced. You'll never have to debug configuration surprises again. And what's more, they can automatically convert your configurations into PowerShell DSC. So uh, if you mention that you heard about Guardrail on .NET Rocks when you sign up for a free account, uh, you can monitor five nodes with Guardrail standard free for a year. There you go. Awesome. So who's our winner, dude? So the winner of the guardrail subscription today is Dermot Flaherty. Congratulations, Dermot. Yeah, I suspect he's from Ireland with a name like that. And he just won a year-long subscription with a cap of five nodes from Script Rock. Script Rock. Nice. New sponsor. Excellent. Yeah. And if you don't know what we're talking about right now, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And uh, we also like to ask our guest, Brian, Brian Hunter, Oh, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy, sir? I think I would make some friends. Uh, I, I just got, I heard, so when I was, uh, Sonia mentioned, uh, dropped by the Erlang Solutions office the other day, I just heard yep. some news, uh, that will be public by the time that this airs, and so I can say it now. Uh, Great. Uh, so at Erlang, um, Factory San Francisco, uh, at the end of March, mm -hmm. so this is March, uh, 25th, 26th, 27th, uh, you can have the, uh, the, the, the three inventors of Erlang there, Joe Armstrong, Mike Williams, Robert Verding, and yep. you're also gonna have Alan Kay. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And so, Alan Kay, you know, co you know, coined OO, mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, then famously later said, uh, I, you know, like I, invented, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I, I invented OO, and I didn't have C in mind. You know, and so, and so, and then a lot, over time, you hear a lot of comparisons where where you look at what he describes as what uh, OO is. Or, uh, he just, Erlang looks a whole lot like his description there right. of message yeah. passing and these things. And so with Alan Kay there, the founders of uh, the, the inventors of Erlang there, uh, I think that's going to be a really great show. And uh, I think I could send six people, six of my closest friends uh, ah. there uh, for the $5,000 oh, and, wow, and have yeah. a couple hundred bucks for beer. You know, uh, this beer. is awesome because <laughs> I think you might be the first one, Brian, who's chosen to spend your money on an experience. Rather than toys, <laughs> geek, yeah. geek tourism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's great. And of course, we all know experiences make the best gifts in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was thinking we had uh, Robert Verding on the show as part of a panel discussion. Oh, that's right. And uh, that's back right. at NDC, I don't know, two years ago. Oh, well, and, yeah. Uh, and one of the parts of the conversation we were talking about how stable Erlang was, and just like, well, you know, no new features because it was done. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. is this done you speak of? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. That was his, his position. It's like, you no, know, it, it's done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it kind of doesn't surprise me that the documentation was stable. It's been done for a while. And yeah. the fact that early, uh, Elixir pops up here as a way to, you know, bring some more modern features and things to, to yeah. Erlang. You mentioned that uh, you can modify the language. Right. Right. Now, how is this different from the extension methods and things that we can add on top of objects now? Are you talking about keywords? Like, actually, do you can new? add? You can add keywords. So, pipe mm. forward, for example, which is borrowed from, I guess, F sharp. As far as I know, mm-hmm. I, I don't actually know the origin. If there's another language before F sharp, where the the, the the little pipe forward operator that's so cool that the mm. F sharpers brag about. Yep. Well, yeah. you see it in Elixir, and it's used the uh, it's used the same way. It's, it's to 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 compose functions where you're passing the output of one function into the next one, so you don't have a bunch of intermediate variables hanging out where you say right. x1 is equal to something or another, right. x2 is equal to function on x1, x3 yeah. is equal, you know, and so yeah. on. This that painful thing there, like you end Lando, up just maybe. composing these things through, and then also so you don't have the big nested cur- uh, parentheses uh, mess of having a function and a function and a function. Mm. So this just flows the thing through, makes really readable, concise code, and that is a macro. That is so they have defined then what pipe and forward is, this gets turned at compile time into basically the intermediate variables. Mm-hmm. Neat. Uh, and so so it is filled with things like that. And uh, so there are other bits where there are parts in the syntax of Erlang, like, so there's not exactly an if statement in Erlang. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is a li- it's just not there because they didn't really need it and they didn't think it's a good idea and so on. But but it's always a thing that stubs toes of everyone that comes in. So you can't say just like, I just if- love that you just said, well, we didn't really need it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. because think, pattern you, matching is such a big deal in Erlang that right. you end up doing most of the things this way, but occasionally you get to a spot where really the thing you want is not an if else. What you want is just an if. Like, if like this condition is here, I want to do some stuff, Testing and otherwise I don't yeah. really want to do anything. I just want you to carry on and go through right. the code. And mm-hmm. so uh, that is in Elixir. You have an if. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I, only every, took thirty years, but yeah. by God, we got it. But, but, but you have. But the thing is, is you actually have everything that you uh, like have grown to love. And right. if you're a Python developer, you probably have a lot of that. If you're uh, so uh, a closure, you would have like the build tool Lineagain is mm-hmm. becomes the tool Mix in Elixir. Right. Uh, you npm for Node people is hex. Uh, you have Hex, the package manager in Elixir. Huh. So it's it's thing after thing after thing. And all then of you, your favorite things from these languages, these they're things, here. And then you get this fault tolerance, this best concurrency model ever, right. and uh, and then the distribution model. That is, is it, is an, is it an actor model? It is. And okay. so so you, you define, just in the same way as you would in, in Erlang, in Elixir, you do everything in processes. Mm-hmm. And so the important part... There are several bits here, but as far as a productivity thing, and so this is a thing that would be delightful for a Ruby dev coming in uh, or a C-sharp dev, uh, is you get to treat all your code as if it's sequential. Like, I, I, I'm not thinking, you never think about threads right. in, in, in uh, Elixir code or in Erlang code. Mm-hmm. It's, everything is just top to bottom, and, then you, it, you, and, and the good thing is, unlike a node, you can block... And everything is great. <laughs> so nice, if, right. you, if you're coming along and you need to do something, a blocking operation, mm. uh, uh, the scheduler, what it does is it immediately moves you out of the rotation, the, uh, the Erlang VM scheduler, and, and all of the other hundreds of thousands of processes that are out there running are being scheduled in and out. And when I say hundreds of thousands, I, I mean it because a lot of mo- you, you tend to use uh, processes as, as casually as you would new up an object in right, C yeah. Sharp. And so you end up with thousands and... It, Possibly even more lightweight. I don't know wow. because because you can have uh, you easily have hundreds of thousands of processes kicking along, and sure. um, and it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's only our 
previous perceptions of yeah. living in windows that we think the processes are so expensive. And and you think about when you're coordinating lots of concurrent things inside of any other language, it is right. you are not in the sweet spot anymore. No, because no. that language wasn't built for that. It right. didn't have that model. And here, each each of these little capsules have the isolation that you would have in a normal like operating system process, right, like right. a Windows process or Linux process, but you have much less of the even the the pain than you would have in a thread or, or much of the, much less lightweight, and you're absolutely protected. You can't screw with the memory of the other process, mm. and so safety is there. You have this isolation, and you don't have to think about the world outside. Right. You're communicating with the world outside through messages, so you just fire and you sort of forget. Mm. Or if you need to fire and wait for a result, there are bits inside of Elixir that let you do async await, which you know is stolen and from C sharp. Great fast, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so oh, uh, literally uh, uses the await keyword. Yeah, that's async await. Yeah, wow. and so you you have this this there, and uh, Erlang doesn't have that. What you do is you code that yourself in Erlang, and it's a, right. it's a, like three lines of code, but you do it a lot. Yeah. And, um, so when I asked you, you know, what are the pain points of Erlang that uh, Elixir fixes, the answer is, how much time have you got? Well, kind of. <laughs> and, and, of course, I know how much time we have. And so uh, uh, not a lot right. <laughs> right now for this. But uh, I think that is the thing is it's uh, right now it, it is very productive to be in, in Elixir. And I, I, a lot of devs are coming from different stacks. So there, there are people from Ruby. So uh, there are a lot of Ruby uh, meetups that are having Elixir. Uh, talk. Interesting. There are, interestingly, when I've given this talk, I expected I'd have a lot of Ruby people interested, but the biggest group that I've seen that has wanted to move over when they heard what this was about was Node.js developers. Interesting. And it's the Node.js developers who had actually built systems instead of the ones that had played around. And the ones right. that, when, when a Node.js developer builds a system, they tend to get burned because right, they hit a point it, of complexity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, it's because things are, things, the, the, the hype, the promise on Node doesn't quite match up with what it's good at. Mm-hmm. Node is good at a set of things and it gets abused and used for many, many things it's not good at. Right. And, uh, those things, interestingly, the thing is, is I look at what Node does, and there's very little of what it does that I wouldn't say that Elixir also does very well. Right. And but then you don't get into the sort of trouble spots there. And so, and and that is, uh, I I know less about Node than a lot of people coming up to me and saying, "My God, I'm 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 moving over to Elixir. This is really great." Um, uh, but it is very much a service building oriented language too, like like yes, Erlang. Yes, yes. So, so you're not building uh, UIs. Yes. Of course, you know the thing is, is I wonder if maybe you will soon because uh, it's because a, it's the way a, that the language is being extended, issue. it's a tooling and library thing. This yeah. is not a concern of the Erlang people at Ericsson. Right. This could very well be a concern of people uh, that would you know you, you think about like how I, I think a great use case of Node has been in the Atom IO uh, so at GitHub's editor. Right. So it's Node JS on the client, mm. and I think that is a very good use of Node. But I would prefer to have, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd prefer to have Elixir just because I, I would feel more comfortable writing the code from a syntax uh, perspective, and I'd also be able to probably trust the plugins that are written not to be so crashy because yeah. Adam crashes on me a lot because it's you know it's well and plug-in, it's hard to get it right. You know? Yeah, plugin architectures are hard. Yeah, you know, yeah. two ways about it. Yeah. So and and it's because languages don't lend themselves that automatically. I wonder if Erlang is better behaved. In what you would want from a, from a plugin architecture? Yeah, I mean that's it's what it's absolutely meant to do. It is it is a it is a coordinating. Yeah. it's all about it's coordination. This idea of keep everything in yeah. a separate process and control the message passing between them. You know, where the the implication of a plugin for a lot of languages is embed this in your app, embed this as part of your code, and mm-hmm. I will make you unstable. 
Mm. Like just in terms of it from an architectural <laughs> yep, point absolutely. of view. You you have the firewalls that are built in just in the yeah. process model. It's all the way down. It's yeah, it's all the way down. Yeah. No matter where you look, it's turtles, yeah. right? Yep. So. so I'm looking here that we have a Windows installer, Unix, many flavor installers, and uh, Mac OS X. Uh, it, it kind of uh, occurs to me, you know, when we talked to Ben Hall about Docker, you know, which is this sort of lightweight container uh, thing that you can use in Linux. That would be a perfect uh, thing to run in a Docker container. Oh, yeah, probably so. Yeah, I, I, like I don't know enough about Docker, but uh, it sounds uh, from what little I've heard of it, it seems like a seems like a nice fit. Uh, yeah, yeah. The challenge would be the CEO, it's the relationship to the OS that matters, right? right. I mean, we have you know, over and over again with the whole Erlang conversation. Now this is running in its own OS. This is its own container of the way that it works. Yes. Yeah, it really is the thing. It's it is taking on that role of being an OS. Right. Uh, and in the case like on on Amazon EC2, you have bare metal Erlang running directly on the nice. Zen hypervisor. So there's you have a server that boots up there where it takes 300 seconds to boot up a Linux box uh on on EC2. Right. Uh it takes 0.3 seconds to serve up a web page if you've booted up into Erlang on Zen. <laughs> wow. From cold. Yeah, cold to serve up a page. And so there's a little uh, Zerg, Z, uh, Z-E-R-G dot Erlang on Zen dot org, I think. Right. You hit this page and it will it will create a new VM. It'll right. create a new instance of a EC2 thing. Bring it up. Yeah. Boot up. Boot up a web server. Load Django templates, <laughs> yeah. serve your page, and then kill the VM. And you're sitting there looking at the page on this machine that doesn't exist. Anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You know where the term Zerg comes from? No, I have no idea. There's a video game called StarCraft. Ah, that was it's a tower building. Is you the know, Emperor. No, well, Zerg was actually one of the races, and it's the oh. overwhelming massive oh. flood. Right? You talk about <laughs> Zerg waves. Oh in, wow, in okay. Battling the Zerg waves. So we have a Zerg. I'm thinking. Mm. That's Brilliant. a perfect name yeah. for this sort of flooding effect of massive ha- attacks. Uh, Interesting. Thanks. I, I, <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, yeah, I wasn't sure of the origin. So, yeah. so what you're saying, it would be great on uh, Azure EC2 where you can yes. just boot this thing right up. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Wow, so this wow, is wow. a thing that I would love to see. So, so. Um, I, I F Sharp MVP, yep. and I and I have a I have a lot of love for Microsoft, and mm-hmm. I've been in the Microsoft stack from from when I first uh, started coding professionally in '94, mm-hmm. and so I've been there the whole time, right? Uh, and every once in a while, there are things that hurt me. <laughs> I see, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see yeah. the things that Microsoft's doing. It's like, oh, please don't do that. And you yeah. see them making this bad move, and you're like, no, yeah, you know, yeah, and you're just sort of slow motion, motion yeah. happening out in front, and. And I feel a bit like that with how the the bear hug that they gave Node.js. And, yeah. and and so that would be all right if there was another alternative. And so mm-hmm. I, I believe that Microsoft really needs to get ahead of a wave for once. You know, a lot of times they fall behind. Every once in a while they'll do something ahead of time. Yeah, like, yeah. link, brilliant. No one was asking yep. for it. No one expected it. They weren't behind. Yeah. Brilliant. So uh, other other bits. So here... To, to, for them to do a full-on embrace of Elixir, which is going to become a top ten language. So you're <laughs> I mean, saying it is, it is, Visual Studio, IntelliSense, deployment, well, you to could, Azure, you could, all of that. You could absolutely do that, but um, the first step would be uh, Azure worker roles on, uh, you know, for Elixir. You know, uh, right. so you have this ability of going back and forth. You have good SDKs built for all of like the the the, the SQL, you know, all of the the different services that are up, the right. queues, and, and you know, for what you didn't want to use inside your workers. But mm. and and so you can look at it even from a cost perspective. Like mm. they're going to get more out of that 
physical hardware that they're truly paying for right. than they are currently. And so that, I mean, that's a selfish re- you know, reason for them to do it. But then it's also, I think it's a very responsible thing for them to do. And, and I'd be delighted. And I, I think with Sancha, well, well, the, the sort of the, the mindset, I think it'll happen. Yeah, no, I think it have, could happen. We have a much more technically oriented yeah. version of Microsoft. And this well, open, this, this, I mean, just someone that thinks, for God's sake. <laughs> well, we'll, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. we'll send this uh, a link to the show to Scott Guthrie. And, oh, awesome. You know, yeah. 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 yeah so I, is there I, anything that you want to directly say to Goo? <laughs> Um, yeah, give me a call, call, call me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I would love to, uh, I'd love to see that project built. Uh, yeah. if it's, in, if it's at Microsoft, uh, but I know, uh, if it's at Microsoft, it's in the community, however it's built. Yeah. I, I think it needs to happen though. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things, uh, uh, I have a story that we were we were talking about earlier, and I hadn't thought about this. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, like sort of a high five that my brother had uh, just randomly won uh, uh, a prize by a, a comment, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and it got me thinking about him. And I realized it's not that random; he, it's a great comment, well, it's, and we send him a Don and Rocks mug for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. I mean, but randomly picked, I guess. Yeah. And so, and, and, and so uh, but he uh, he is just now moving from a, a company he's been at for twenty years. Wow. He's leaving this shop because there is another shop that is gearing up to have a mix of of .NET and Elixir. Oh. And so he's seeing this. Uh, there, there are these di- people leaving these different companies to go work at this place. So it's actually becoming a recruiting tool wow. for this yeah. company. And so that, well, that kind of tells you Ruby too, it, right? See, yeah. this is the thing. And so you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. You want it to be the story of of Elixir and .NET, which right. is uh, is a great story and is the story that we have at Firefly Logic. Mm-hmm. It's really we want to use uh, we want to use .NET. We want to use F Sharp for the things that it is very good at. Right. Uh, if I'm talking to SQL Server, I'm talking to Active Directory, mm-hmm. if I'm on the mobile device, I, I, I'm absolutely going to be using Xamarin or .NET there, and mm-hmm. I'm hopefully going to be using F Sharp if I'm using .NET. Right. Away from that, if I'm coordinating things, if I'm handling millions of concurrent users, mm-hmm. if I'm scaling across dozens or hundreds of servers, mm-hmm. if I need systems that don't fall down, I want Erlang for that. Right. And if I'm, you know, you might All use these C if you need device models. drivers or yes. something. I mean, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, instead of, I, I think the embrace on one side of Node is 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 good in that it, it, it was the first time it really sort of happened where yeah. Microsoft reached out and grabbed something that wasn't really theirs. Right. And, uh, and, and the embrace of Node is not about the language, not about JavaScript. Yeah. It it's was about, about that. The, the community was building up, and they and they yeah. realized they didn't want to miss a wave there. And, 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 and a brilliant approach to microservice. Right? I mean, that's the whole thing when I think of Node is this ability to build very small chunks of independently running code that that you call into, and it's the minimum surface area, minimum, minimum footprint, minimum code around it. So you know, microservice uh, uh, is a, is a funny one. Like you have this, the, I've seen it, this suite of small services, each running in its own process and mm-hmm. communing communicating with lightweight mechanisms. Right. Is that actually sounds a whole devil a lot like what Alan Kay talks about. Yeah. And that sounds a lot like what Joe Armstrong talks sure. about. Absolutely. And what Jose Valim is out there talking about now. Yeah. Because you actually have the full on communication of these separate processes. Yeah. And, and, and a management over, you know, the whole reason to go that approach is so that reliability is a factor. Yes. The, the thing is that no doesn't deal with reliability as no. it stands right now. You have to do that yourself. You yeah. can do it. Yeah. But the fact that intrinsic to to Erlang Elixir it, is this be- reliable behavior is pretty compelling. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar sort of thing over with Go, actually, because yeah. Go is wicked fast. 
Uh, it handles concurrency, but it doesn't really. I mean, it, it panics. You know, you don't. <laughs> you, you, and you don't. You don't have the reliability store. You just don't right. have that anywhere else because that wasn't the design goal of yes. anything else. Can, can and we it's, talk? Can we talk about the how do you develop with Elixir? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess you could use like Nitrous IO as a cloud-based yeah. IDE or something like that. You, you, but are you, there are are there IDEs that every, rival the experience of Visual Studio? This kind of tells you about the community again because you you have a. This is you know coming from Ruby, coming from people that are. Coming Coming in from Closure, people coming in from uh, from Node right. that have, have built this thing up, and they are all about building tools. Mm. And so you see great plugins for Sublime Text, great okay. pool, tools for Atom, oh. uh, uh, GitHub's right. editor, uh, uh, Emacs, Vim. Yeah, uh, you know, so it's everywhere. Uh, yeah, you Adobe's. don't mention Emacs and Vim if you're talking about IDEs. <laughs> yeah, so no, our audience, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but you know, inside <laughs> of each of these, you get like uh, squeak. Like so, inside of. Uh, Adam, I have error squigglies that yeah. whenever I'm typing along and I do something goofy, I, I know about it as I'm typing. Right. I get, uh, you know, you get, you know, the equivalent, uh, IntelliSense TM. I don't know what the yeah, non-TM yeah, yeah. version of IntelliSense, yeah, yeah. but right. you get that sort of thing. And yeah. so you get these completion. benefits, right? Yeah, statement completion. You can edit right. out that if you don't no, want to have a team. No, that's fine. Totally. Leave it in. We'll live dangerously. That's what, but that's what also what people know and have yeah. come to expect, right? Yeah, yeah. We basically have this pre-processing compiler in our editor that's evaluating our code as we write it. Yes. Dealing with the fact that it's incomplete and has errors and so forth. But as it forms, they can help us see that it's yep. done. And that's not a trivial thing to do. You, you know, it, it, funny enough, it ends up being a simpler thing to do if you have more isolated pieces. Right. You know, so you've got these functional languages tend to be smaller. Mm-hmm. You, you have this this in, in Erlang. You have the separation of processes, so it's not a hard job, but it's much easier, I think, probably inside of inside of languages like sure. like Elixir to actually mm-hmm. pull that stuff off really yeah. well. And so, uh, yeah, but you want to see it in the studio? I get that sense. Oh, I would love to see this. Right. Yes, but I, I think, what do you think? Sublime might be the the nicer. I, I use Atom now. Atom, uh, uh, and. It was sort of a coin toss. I just, yeah. uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to have the, uh, the editor that most people would be comfortable with because I, I speak on this a lot. Mm-hmm. So right. when I'm out presenting something, I don't, like, this is always the problem I had with, with you don't Erlang be- presentations is a lot of times I would be up and I would be using Emacs. Mm-hmm. And I think I probably turned more people off. Uh, of Erlang because of Emacs, Emacs than they did because of the yeah, syntax yeah, of Erlang. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, you know, so I, again, you'll probably get a lot of hate mail uh, on, on that, but, uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, well, maybe you won't because there yeah. are probably a lot of Emacs people on your on. Uh, whew, I dodged a bullet, <laughs> <laughs> but it's. I mean, like you said the Atom editor. That's GitHub's tool, and yeah. and uh, yeah. folks know it, right? Yeah, and you could absolutely do this inside of Visual Studio. I think that would be a brilliant project yeah, for someone awesome. to take on. Yeah. So you've been here at NDC for a few days. There's a functional programming track here. What uh, what all is going on in the FP world? Yeah, so, so this is one of the great things about NDC is so last uh, at NDC Oslo in June they uh, it was the first time that they'd had a full on three day functional programming track right. and it went really well mm-hmm. and so we see it again here at uh, NDC London people are you know really digging it and it's it's a polyglot FP thing so it's uh, it's all different functional programming languages there's a mix here of of F sharp. There's ha- there's a Haskell talk mm-hmm. uh, to kick off the day today. There's mm-hmm. Elm, which is uh, like this beautiful little language uh, that uh, functional reactive programming done right in a yeah. browser. And so and it's a Haskell uh, that run you know the Haskell that compiles to JavaScript. But but out of this group, the conversations are absolutely brilliant because you have this mix of Erlangers, Elixir people, F sharp people, 
uh, and in some cases, the people that wrote the language. So mm, Don right. Syme here, yeah. uh, in uh, Oslo, we had right. Robert Verding and Joe Armstrong there. And so yeah. it's yeah. like the people that actually wrote the languages. And so out of that, we're, we're seeing lots of conversations about how these things can come together and can influence. And so you have guys like Jose, uh, who reaches out and pulls in everything from all the other languages. But there's an interesting thing between the, the, most of the talks here are around the Erlang VM or F Sharp is really right. where the FP track is about. Right. And that combination, I think, is really beautiful because they're complements. They're really good at different sets of things. They don't right. step on each other's turf very much. And there, there are interesting bits about the idea. And so this conversation kicked off at uh, Oslo. Uh, with Robert Verding, who's built a bunch of languages and then a bunch of F-sharp people around. Sure. But the idea of, of having an F-sharp that compiles down to the Erlang VM. But huh. so, so this would be, uh, you know, so it's like, oh, another language on the Erlang VM. And so th- uh, on its surface, I'd be like, that's interesting. Why would you do it? And mm-hmm. so the, the reason you would do it, it wouldn't be like Elixir is, where it's a full-on language that only targets the Erlang VM. But the, the idea of having this language where it was strongly typed, F-sharp, mm-hmm. and it is F-sharp. It's not just an ML that's mm-hmm. on the Erlang VM. It's F-sharp. And it, when it compiles, this is the part to see if it's actually even possible. I mean, this is going to take a lot of work. But have it compile down so that you have this sort of split assembly thing that happens. So the pieces that are referring to .NET ecosystem bits, the things that are referring off to Microsoft land, come down as a .NET assembly. Sure. Hmm. And then you also are producing a Beam file, which is the compiled Erlang uh, uh, file. So this Mm -hmm. is compiled Erlang uh, code. And what you do is you have these two halves, and as part of bridge work in your compiler, yeah, how do they you have the communication queued in. So this, this communication is wow. ugly. And when you put this inside your own code, there, there are libraries to do this, uh, where you can interrupt directly between C-sharp and, uh, and Erlang. Right. And in the C-sharp code to Erlang looks as if it is an Erlang node. And so this code, though, in the C-sharp side is so ugly. And, and so, and it's gonna, and you can do the same thing in F-sharp, but it's ugly. And so the thing is, you can completely have that down in the compile cycle because that is, that's like IL. You can hide it all. You can hide the ugly down in that. Right. A, a dev never sees it, but you have the same way of the two communicating. And I would see that like as the mailbox processor agents on the F-sharp side, the, when you were ready to do your bridge work between, that's how you would handle it. It would be right. an agent on the, on the F-sharp side that would talk to a process on the Erlang side, and then you would have this very tight, fast connection between the two. And you would be able to do all the magic of the Erlang VM and all the magic of, of F-sharp on the other side. And you right. would also have a statically typed language that compiled down to... Uh, to so, so, interesting thing about statically typed languages. They protect you from a whole set of things at compile time. Yes. And then you pay the penalty for it from yeah, then on. Yeah. yeah. So, it protects you at compile Once time. And it's, a, and it's a total pain because you have DLL hell. Right. And you have all these things that happen at runtime. So, you, it's really... So... The, you think about this. When you have a statically typed thing that's been compiled down, uh, that code, you start loving it less every year. <laughs> sure. and Because it, it, it becomes and this thing that you change it. Badly. And, 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 and you don't want to have that type binding there. Right. And it really is nice to be able to have, in Erlang systems, you have hot code loading. So you have a system that was written 20 years ago, or, or in my case, I actually ran into one in the wild when I first bumped into Erlang. Right. It had been running for four years. And in two years of its life, they had done a major code upgrade and they pushed the code in on a running system. So code had been running for two years, pushed in new code. It picks up the new code, just jumps into the loop in the middle of a function call. You right. know, and so, mm-hmm. and so this is, this doesn't happen in statically typed languages. Wow. So if you could get the benefit of your static 
uh, uh, compilation, your static typing at the top, have all the beautiful expression uh, ex- uh, exploration bits of type providers where you can go off and reach and you can do all these these smart things with discriminated unions and all this. Compile that down and then have the looseness of a dynamic language at runtime mm-hmm. over on the uh, the beam half of it. Right. With tests. Tests are important. Tests are important yeah. in SAS. So you could yeah. write your tests in the same way that you write with F, like FS unit or right. X, you know, sure. or FS check and all that. And you'd have all that. Yeah. And so, uh, and the thing is, is, uh, this would be this would be another beautiful project. So this is this is when if Redmond got involved in this and they saw the potential of the Erlang VM as a thing. Right. Uh, so there are pockets at Redmond where there are people that that love what's going on in the Erlang VM and they yeah. will, they'll pull bits into research that they're doing. And there are things that are incubation projects where there's a whole lot of Erlang thought into it. Uh, hmm. uh, so here at NDC London this week, uh, there are projects about uh, Project Orleans. And yep. if you look at it, you start thinking. I mean, you can't. You, you're looking at thinking Erling. Or, that's Erling. Erling. And so, <laughs> and so, you, you have a lot of that. So there are these groups. If at a Scott Guthrie level, uh, you had a real focus where it's like, let's let's see what this thing is about. It's not a fad. This thing is not going away. It's been around longer. Is it been around as long as Microsoft Corporation's been around? Well, and I'd like <laughs> to point out, speaking of Microsoft, that they know how to do the actor model. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, that's, the message the, that's pump, what Orleans is about. Yeah, the, the message pump in Windows GDI and Windows Win32 is essentially the actor model. It's these little windows that all have H wins, and then they send messages to each other, and you have a message pump that essentially processes those messages. Um, you know, so they know how to do this stuff. It's not like they don't. It's just a question of applying it in an in available development model. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are things that uh, it, it's going to be really hard in the short run uh, to pull off and, and potentially uh, missing another wave of developers, and that would be yeah. the tragedy. Um, awesome. Brian, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's, it's been fun. Thank and you all. I've already downloaded and installed it. So. Hey, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I hope you will, too. We'll Yay. see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 